0: Welcome to the HS health tech podcast, which covers the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive health startups and leaders. So you are listening to one of our first 20 episodes so first of all thank you so much for listening. As you can imagine with the podcast they get more and more popular which I certainly did after episode 20 so we started giving proper introductions, long introductions and we upgraded our equipment and everything like that so that's why you're hearing from me now because we're putting this at the start of every one of those first 20 episodes. So I am your host, my name's James Somaru, I'm an anaesthetics and intensive care doctor by back So I practiced for five years. I did loads of different jobs in policy and leadership within the UK NHS. I've run two different health tech accelerators to help startups grow, access different markets in the UK and abroad. And now I'm a co-founder of HS and we build, scale and invest in the best health tech startups. So if you want to get in touch with us, then head on over to the description of this podcast. In there, you will find all of the links to our social media, website, emails, etc. So click on those, follow us, let us know what you think of the podcast and feel free to suggest any guests. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Connect with us. Let us know what you think.
1: Welcome to the HS podcast. We're delighted to have two guests on today's show, so joining James and I today are Dr. David Neal, who's the CEO at Vesalian and who has a background in behavioral science, and also Paul Roberts, uh, who is the CEO of GPDQ. Paul comes from a strong technology background. and Today's theme is talking around GP and general practice technology, and also communication and behavioral science, given David's background. So David, to kick things off, why don't you tell us a little bit about your role at Vesalien and also your background?
2: Yeah, thanks, Alex. So as you mentioned, I'm a doctor. My background before I was a doctor was did a degree in behavioral neuroscience at the University of Cambridge. Actually, more broadly than that, I sort of had this vision of setting out to understand sort of humans and how humans work, which sounds kind of grandiose perhaps, but I started out studying medicine. And alongside that, I was like, okay, I'll do a bit of psychology, behavioural science. And then also alongside that, I did a bit of anthropology as well. Applying that to healthcare, general practice is a really interesting context. It's all about relationships, even more so than any other part of medicine. And a lot of it's about behaviour change. A lot of it is about sitting down with someone and trying to get them to take a medicine or do something to improve their health or to stay well. When I experienced that last year firsthand, I realized it's really difficult to do, particularly in the NHS, you've got 10 minutes to build that relationship and try and come to decisions with people and, and make decisions and take actions. Very difficult to do and very few resources to support you in doing that. That was a problem. I saw a problem and I thought I could come up with a solution based on that background. And that's why I found it the same.
1: Obviously, James and I, we met you guys when you came through the first call of HS. Now, you and your co-founders had some quite unique backgrounds and were obviously very passionate about starting a digital health company. But I think it's probably fair to say the idea and the concepts you had initially weren't what Vesalian is today, which I think for you know, anyone listening, he's thinking about starting an early stage company. I think your journey has been really interesting just watching how you've sort of pivoted and, and or not even pivoted, but just got user feedback and mapped what you're doing around that. How yeah. have you sort of found that, that journey from, yeah. from you know, changing what you've been doing?
2: Yeah. So when I was still at university, I set up a social enterprise and I worked with a couple of colleagues to do that. And we were looking for an opportunity to work together on something again. And, and I knew James. And so I, I knew about HS and I thought it seemed like a fantastic opportunity to work with some really inspirational people to potentially build something really powerful. Our first idea was not something that is, I, I would even want to talk about today we sat around a table and we thought, what could we do together that might help healthcare that we could pitch to HS? And we came up with the idea of an electronic health record, a very novel, ingenious idea. It was really good that we threw that out of the window very quickly. And you'd sat us down and you said, have you actually talked to any doctors about what they want or any patients about what they want? We thought, oh yeah, maybe that's a good place to start. But then, you know, you gave, what did you give us? You gave us two weeks, I think, or a week. It was one week, wasn't it? You gave us one week to go out and talk to like 50 people, GPs, patients, doctors, all kinds of people, talk to them about the problems they were having, talk to them about possible solutions, just really open-ended conversations. And that is where all of this really started. You know, we, we were entrepreneurial people with interesting backgrounds like you said who wanted to work together and found each other inspiring to work with and we found you guys inspirational we came up with something rubbish and then actually by going out and talking to people that's where the was really born was that coming up with something that's there's a problem there's a solution that
1: matters to people yeah it's really interesting i mean i I think certainly when you know james and i first met you and your team it's very apparent that obviously you you have these sort of Skills um, that I think it would be fair to say you, you know, putting them to use on an on a electronic health record probably wasn't getting the best <laughs> out of them with your, you know, your sort of um, anthropological background and your unique sort of skill sets around that. So, why, didn't, why don't you sort of tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what does Vesalium do at the moment? What's the sort of, in practical terms, how is a GP going to use this to revolutionize their, their primary care practice?
2: Well, think about the last time you went to see a GP. How good were they at explaining what was going on with you and explaining what the treatment options were and all of the benefits and risks of those treatment options and therefore advising you what you should do? You know, that's very difficult to do. You've got a couple of minutes. So we sat down and we thought, okay, what I want in that situation as a patient, as a doctor, I want the best evidence, the best information. I want it quickly and easily accessible in the most easy to understand, intuitive format that's gonna help me make a decision about what to do. That's what Vesalien does. So we help people understand their healthcare and make better decisions together in partnership with their clinician. So the way we do that is we apply behavioral science to data from high quality research to generate resources that visually, numerically are really impactful and intuitive for you to access at the point of care to discuss with a patient and to then form a launch pad on to further more detailed information if, if that's what they want. So, this is about bringing evidence into decision making. It's about making decisions together, forming trusting relationships for healthcare, because that is the most important thing in healthcare. And it still will be in 10 years, it still will be in 100 years is a trusting relationship. It's very exciting
1: because certainly my background doing orthopedic surgery, where we're having to, I mean, we do. Obviously clinics, outpatient clinics, where you're seeing people now in a specialist setting where you've got things like sort of x-rays, you know why the patient's coming in. And orthopedics in itself is quite a practical specialty. So you're examining the patient, you're looking at some of the imaging. GPs don't necessarily have that. And, and they've got to give a very broad want look over the patient, ascertain exactly what's going on, put a management plan in place, and do that all in around about you know six minutes. I think, is the sort of targets at the moment globally, which is incredibly difficult. So the amount of time and, and therefore you know money as well, which is spent on poor communication and just time wasted is, is absolutely enormous globally.
2: We know that 80% of complaints in primary care are about poor communication. And actually, we also know that poor patient engagement and poor communication, which is really the critical part of primary care, costs the UK health system More than six and a half billion pounds a year. So it's a huge issue for, as you say, from a cost point of view, also from a clinical outcomes point of view. You know, it's 50 50 whether a patient will actually take a medication that I prescribe. Okay, medication adherence rates about 50%. That costs a huge amount of money and poor health outcomes, wasted prescriptions, wasted time. So, you know, if we can solve this, we can get it right, which is what we're doing. We're going to save a hell of a lot of money for a lot of people.
1: I think from the patient's point of view as well, going in and seeing any sort of doctor, whether it's a GP or, or indeed you know, if it's a nurse-led clinic, actually retain any sort of information can be incredibly challenging. Um, you're, you're given such a huge amount of, of information and data by the doctor or the nurse when they're informing you of what either test results might be or risk or anything along those lines. And often you know, when you leave a doctor's office, there are loads and loads of questions that people either just forget to ask or don't fully understand. And again, as a surgeon, that plays out you know, really importantly in the whole consent process because if people aren't completely informed, there's an argument to say you know, they don't actually have the actual yeah. capacity because they haven't been given the appropriate information.
2: Yeah, there's huge medical legal connotations to whether we're informing patients adequately about the, the benefits and risks of the treatments we're providing. And that's not just about giving them the information. It's also about documenting and recording that you've given that information. One of the things that people really love about the resources that we're designing is it makes it really quick and easy to give the information. But it's in that same time, in that same resource, it's really quick and easy to document the fact that you've given that information. It just pulls it through. So you haven't got to sit there as a GP typing out, we told you about the risk of this, we told you about the risk of that. So that's a really important thing. And, And we know actually as well that, the Medical Protection Society, one of the biggest indemnifying organisations in the UK, wrote a report last year that said that, again, poor engagement, poor communication is the biggest predisposing factor to patients bringing negligence claims against doctors, regardless of whether any harm actually occurred during care. So it's this communication engagement aspect of healthcare is a
1: huge overlooked problem. Why do you think there aren't that many companies doing, I suppose, you know, what you're doing in this space at the moment? What is it? What's your sort of unique insight around everything that you're doing? I think it's because we're sitting at the intersection
2: of several different disciplines and approaches to the problem. So we're sitting at the intersection of behavioral science, which is an incredibly powerful and much underutilized resource. Behavioral science with clinical experience and designing something specific for a context. And also really good UI and UX design. By integrating those things, we're achieving things that that no one else could just
1: by following one of those approaches by itself. So, Leanne, we're going to talk a little bit more about sort of UI UX and, and the links to behavioral science things a bit, a little bit later on um, in the conversation. Where do you think, you know, obviously you're, you're sort of just starting off in relatively early stage with the salient? Were you looking to take this in, say, you know, five years' time or ten years' time? What's the end goal here?
2: The real beauty of the kind of approach that we're taking and the resources that we're designing is that they're really scalable. We can take our approach and we can take this approach and apply it to any data. We can apply it to all data sets coming across all healthcare specialties, across all countries. It's a visually intuitive format that crosses language barriers. So what I see us doing is establishing ourselves initially in UK primary care, and that will be over the next six to 12 months. In five years' time, I want to see us in every country providing resources for every medical specialty Mm -hmm. that is really going to bring about this whole revolution in healthcare of actually engaging patients, making healthcare more efficient,
1: cheaper, and more accessible for more people. With where you're at at the moment, obviously, we know you've... One of the reasons we've got Paul and GPDQ on the podcast today is because... You guys are doing some early work together before we bring Paul in. It'd be interested in interesting just sort of hearing your side of things about how that came about and, and why that's being useful for you as a company at the moment. So we first met, we pitched in an event that was hosted
2: by GPDQ when we were really at a very early stage, but we got to show off one of our early prototypes, which was a resource about flu vaccine, which is very important in primary care. And we pitched to a room full of GPDQ stakeholders, their GPs, and Paul was there as well. And we got a great response. We got a fantastic response from people there. People really liked the direction that we were going in. We had a really great conversation at that point. And then as we were developing further, we were going somewhere with HS's support, and you guys really helped to broker that relationship there. We signed off on a partnership with them, and it's, it's been great. You know, In fact, actually just yesterday... I was meeting with one of the GPDQ GPs, showing them our latest build, getting their feedback. So it's been really instrumental in shaping our product development by having access to that network of GPs. It's
1: it's been fantastic. Paul, why don't you uh, just let everyone know a little bit about yourself and your background and, and what your
3: organization does? Yeah, sure. So hi, I'm Paul Roberts. I'm the CEO of GPDQ. In terms of my background, my background actually isn't medical. So I'm an interloper into this space, but spent all of my career really in technology and using technology to help to solve big problems, you know, either in the space or in terms of turning businesses around. And kind of relatively recently spent some time in multi-channel retail. So for me, it's always been about, okay, we've got a big problem. How do we bring together a number of different strands to actually produce a kind of solution that works end to end? And so then when we think about GPDQ and what that business does, we're trying to solve, you know, one of the biggest problems in the UK at the moment, which is how do we get to a sustainable healthcare system? And our analysis of that is that really, if we can make community-based primary care as accessible and convenient as possible, then that's the key. So what that really means in Calais kind of terms is as a patient, How can I make it, you know, as easy as possible to see a doctor when and where I want to? And so the angle we took around that was to launch the UK's first app accessed home visiting service. So sending a real life doctor to come and see you and doing that 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., seven days a week, and looking to do that within a couple of hours rather than the the couple of weeks that's the average time to get in to see your GP. And as we've been developing, there's a number of different kind of angles that sort of resonate with what David has, has been saying as well. I think one of them is that one of the beauties of, of home visiting is that interpersonal component. So the psychology and the relationship between doctor and patient. And we think that, you know, although remote channels, you know, we're big fans of, they absolutely have their place, but there's no substitute for that face-to-face contact you know, both from a kind of clinical perspective in terms of what you're able to do, but also that connection that you get between doctor and patient. And a lot of the kind of additional clues that you can pick up about what's going on in a patient's life and a lot of the environmental factors that may play into then managing the patient and helping them to get better. So we've always thought that's important. And then the other piece has been around the length of time that we have with the patient. So we, as standards, will deliver a 25-minute consultation, which is clearly, you know, quite a bit more than the six minutes that was referenced earlier. And we believe that, you know, far from being, if you like, a luxury, if we really take the time to sit down with the patient talk through everything that's going on. You know, not only will we understand the patient better and come up with the right sorts of solutions, but we can also spend the time to educate the patient, to reassure them, and actually it becomes an efficiency in terms of then trying to avoid, you know, an excessive number of follow-ups. And quite often those can be driven through, you know, not having actually solved the problem or communicated everything, everything that needs doing at the time. So for us, you know, convenience has always been a component, but so has quality and really trying to drive better, different health outcomes through what we do. And that's really what's led us into the partnership with HS and into working with innovators like David and with Vesalian, is that we're looking to incorporate into our solution as much innovation as we possibly can to deliver the best possible provision. And for us, you know, we're continually looking at every aspect of what we do to see whether we can make it better. Now, clearly, how doctors and uh, patients are communicating with each other is is really pivotal. And anything we can do to equip the doctor with additional tools, additional tools in their armory to deliver a great experience, but also to make sure that the patient is left understanding, you know, the choices that have been made available to them, if there's a choice of, of treatment or simply just, you know, thinking through ramifications of the condition or or possible side effects of the medication. And as David says, traditionally, that's been quite a a sort of static tell. And to have the ability to communicate in more effective ways, you know, that we know are really going to connect psychologically with patients is is incredibly valuable. And, you know, also, as David says, the kind of beauty here is that, you know, not only are you creating better experience for GPDQ patients, but we're trying to really play a role in the overall ecosystem, which is to try to get innovation out to market much faster and in a much more pragmatic way. You know, so the kind of real life example is that we have a really large community of doctors who work with 60 yeah. to 70 GPs across the UK, and they can be providing fast responsive feedback on innovation. And then we can be getting that innovation out in front of patients and getting their feedback too at an early stage.
1: I think it's it's so important, some of the things you spoke about regarding the actual sort of in-person, face-to-face time with patient and doctors, because especially you know, all of us could be guilty of it potentially with with sort of pushing technology onto patients or into hospital systems and healthcare providers. But actually, medicine as a whole is very much a communication job, and that's really what it's all about. It's about being able to communicate, develop trust with your GP or doctor, then being able to actually take that information and use it to adjust your own sort of healthcare outcomes. I think there's another Um, theme here as well, Alex, which is that with both David and GPDQ as
4: a business, it's that whole element of both of those businesses are underpinned by technology. And what that technology is actually doing is enabling clinicians the time to care, You know, the time to actually put a hand back on a patient and make people feel better with the way they're caring for patients. And I think these sorts of technologies, these platforms like GPDQ and platforms like Versalien, it's more that the technology is enabling them to be commercially viable and turned into businesses in sort of a scalable way to essentially scale that care and put that care back into health, essentially.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was, I was just actually looking at some of the stats from my notes. So, I mean, you know, the average consultation time for doctors in the UK is nine minutes, twenty seconds. The BMA, which is the British Medical Association, have pushed sort of 15 minutes for those exact reasons that James just mentioned. But if you look globally at the stats, you've got Sweden where the average is 22 and a half minutes And then you've got Bangladesh, which is 48 seconds. So I'm not sure how they're getting the turnaround because you could barely get a patient seated in an orthopaedic clinic in in 48 seconds. It's really, really interesting that that economy of time both from an economic point of view for the the healthcare providers and and primary care physicians, but also actually for the patients and and the quality of care that they're receiving.
2: I think I'd I'd just like to pick up on some of a business perspective. There was a really fantastic article in in a BMJ, which was a couple of weeks old when I read it because I'm slightly behind in my reading by a fantastic guy called Peter Betaldin, who's been doing so much work over the years on health systems improvement. And they were sort of questioning, do we think of healthcare as a product, or do we think of healthcare as a service? And one of the things that they were saying is that a lot of companies that are innovating and use, applying technology to healthcare are doing that in a way that they're treating healthcare as if it's a product. And they're thinking about the systems involved in getting healthcare out to people as if it's just a product. And he's saying, no, look, okay, we thought about it that way 20 years ago, 10 years ago. We now recognize healthcare isn't just a product. Sometimes it might be. Sometimes it might be we need to get that old lady that's uh, fallen down a new hip. You know, so from your point of view, maybe, maybe sometimes it is a product, but actually it's also a service. And their conclusion is that healthcare is about a relationship and an action. So if you want to succeed from a business point of view, if you're trying to sell a product to someone when what they're looking for is a service, you're going to run into a lot more problems than if you actually say, no, this is a service. This is about a relationship and an action that we're going to take together. And I think that's the unique thing, probably, about GPDQ's approach and our approach at the is that we, I think we both have that understanding that there's a strong service component to the healthcare delivery rather than just thinking of it as. It's a product. How do we get as much of it out to as many people as quickly as possible?
1: Yeah, and I, I, I think um, I think just getting game back over to, to Paul I, again because your platform essentially facilitates patients getting seen by doctors and, and GPs. How do they sort of physically interact with this? What, you know, if I'm a patient, how do I use your system, and 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 why is it better, I guess, than than other things
3: that may be out there? One of the things we've been keen to do, I guess, sort of echoing what what David says, is not to. Ram technology down people's throats. So, you know, we were the first home visiting service that you could access through an app, and that's great. Some people really love using apps. A whole bunch of other people really like to pick the phone up, talk to a real person and find out what's going on and, you know, get the reassurance that we can get a doctor with them as fast as possible that way. And you know, from a very early point, we've provided, you know, a full range of ways for patients to come and book that service. We're not shy about pasting the phone number uh, very probably on, on our, our website. We're obviously delighted if people want to use the app and they can, they can use the website to book as well. And then that extends to we're kind of accessing or, or coming to the patient. You know, we also don't then mind, you know, wherever the patient is, as long as it's a suitable consulting space, we'll go to their home, we'll visit them in the office, we'll go to a hotel room. It's really building it around what the patient wants and needs. And, you know, I I couldn't agree more with with David. You know, healthcare isn't this sort of one-off product, you know, where we have a service which, you know, yes, it works well, particularly well, if there's something that you need done urgently, but we're trying to build these long-term relationships and people's health is, you know, inherently a long-term process and it isn't that single point of intervention. And I think, you know, that's sort of part of the misreading that can come across from the technology piece. You know, technology famously, obviously, is all about, you know, well, we're building a product and that's great. And and how does it go? But healthcare is about harnessing those products, assembling those technology products. And the key thing is how you assemble them and the service wrapper that you put around them. I think
4: that's that's one of the nice things about our partnership at Apple as well, because obviously, You're helping us pick these primary care technologies. You're helping us validate those ideas by getting them that feedback really early from GPs. You're attaching GP mentors. You know, they're co-developing in GP practices. These innovators are getting time to shadow the GPs themselves and see how their technology actually works in action to get it developed. So, yeah, I just think it's great that we've got the ability to do that together, basically, which is essentially going to make this technology actually work as a service like we discussed rather than just a product.
3: Yeah, and I think it's also about how patients come into the service. So the way I've described what GPDQ does so far has all been, you know, very much around consumers paying for a a private GP. And that's great. But really, if we're going to be a scaled, nationally relevant service, you know, we've been trying very hard as well to be free at the point of need, which has involved working not only across different access modes from a tech point of view, but also from a range of different people in terms of who's paying from employers to insurers, you know, to working directly with the NHS as well. And, you know, if we, we're really going to, to sort of live the values of building it around a patient, then, you know, we have to go and build those relationships right the way across the ecosystem and the health system so that we can be in front of as many patients as possible. And, and as you mentioned earlier, Paul, with your,
1: certainly on this call, unique background of not being a health professional or plugged into healthcare, I suppose, by your, your trade initially... Um and coming from a purely tech background. What were some of the things that you sort of that sort of blew your mind when you first came into a digital health company?
3: It's interesting. I think one of the things I'd be very conscious of as the outsider who's sort of tempted to come in and take a look and say, this is crazy, we should be doing it in a totally different way. And hey, we can use technology to disrupt and, and rip everything up. Actually, I think healthcare is a bit different. You know, it is, of all you know, possible kind of industry verticals, absolutely about patients and about people. And you know, we have to be really cognizant of the service we're delivering, not only in terms of the experience, but also the quality and the clinical safety of it. And it's not good enough just to come in and say, this is more convenient. Great, but actually, how do we make it even safer? How do we actually improve health outcomes? So, for me, you know, having that kind of underpinning of clinical quality, that's a lens that we look at all of the innovation through as well. It's not only, you know, is this more convenient for patients, but how do I end up with a healthier set of patients as a result of working with these partners? And, you know, with Vesalium, that's quite clear. If I can be communicating between doctor and patient better, then I'm more likely to get, you know, adherence to medication. For example, you know, the patient understands what's going on. You know, the patient is in a is in a better place, and I'm avoiding the kind of eighty percent trigger around complaints and potential medico legal issues.
1: And I think with with you guys, with um, this is stage you're at as well. So you're uh, you're you're operating in London and Birmingham in the UK. Is that right?
3: Uh, so we're in London, Birmingham, Manchester, and a number of other UK cities as well. And in London, it's it's the whole of Greater London, all the way out to the M25. Amazing. And and
1: similarly to sort of what I was asking David earlier, where are you guys at at the moment and where are you going sort of AB the next sort of three, five years?
3: Well, I think we've got a really exciting journey ahead of us. So I think from everything I said about building it around patience and convenience, it would be a bit weird if we kind of just stuck to home visiting. Uh, you know, we so we've picked home visiting as, you know, the ultimately convenient way of, of getting a doctor out for a patient. And, you know, probably the most added value way of a doctor and a patient interacting. But you know, really we believe that the future is is going to be fully multi-channel, you know, not just how a patient accesses the service, but then how the doctor is delivered. And we think it's going to be a combination of, you know, remote telemedicine, it's going to be home visiting, it's going to be physical in clinic and we're helping to make those complete end to end propositions you know happen by partnering all the way across the ecosystem and you know building some of our own kind of capability across those other channels where that's where that's relevant too so i think that's a really big part of it but i think it's also taking you know through to a kind of conclusion some of this piece around sitting sitting in the middle of a primary care ecosystem if you like which is how do we start to Kind of coordinate more uh, coherently some of this innovation. So, you know, there's an awful lot happening around generating additional data through point of care diagnostics. There are ways of aggregating uh, existing patient information much better. How do we then start to apply analytics on that and put a solution service wrap around it so that we don't just have, you know, well, here's something for diabetes, here's something for, you know, another condition. But we start to have a kind of single place where we can monitor patients and can coordinate care that, you know, yes, may involve GPs, but also may involve nurses or other disciplines. And then we can trigger the right sorts of interventions for patients. So I think, you know, the really interesting kind of five-year view for us is how we can extend out what we're doing with HS to sit at sit at the middle of, of that kind of ecosystem. And that's a concept that is up and running um in the US, but isn't really something that's been done in the
1: UK or elsewhere in the world. I think interesting, you know, talking about sort of all the, the the future ideas, but still all very much, you know, being about patient engagement and being patient facing and, and solving the problems for the the patient um, first and foremost, and I think, yeah, you know, on that, Dave would be interested to hear sort of, you know, your thoughts around your your behavioural science background, how you're looking to sort of apply that to what you're doing at the Salient, but then also, you know, we can all sort of talk about some of the importances behind sort of the UX and UI design uh, for anything that is patient facing.
2: Well, I'm actually going to start by quoting James.
1: That's it's, quite dangerous.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, he's the first person that, I, that actually said this back to me in such succinct terms. He said, all healthcare is behaviour change," And I think that, that, that's so true. Right? If you think the outcome of any consultation with a doctor, think about the last time you saw a doctor, it's probably going to be, we're going to do something or we're not going to do something, or we're going to stop doing something. It's all focused towards what am I going to do to get better? What am I going to do to stay well? So it's all about taking actions. And that's what about you know, making decisions. If you think about what we need to make good decisions, we need good quality information. We need information that's relevant, but we also need the information that is most relevant to us as an individual. We need the information that's going to help us make up our minds about what treatment that we want. And I think this is really important because there's lots of fantastic work as, as Paul alluded to a minute ago being done in, in big data at the moment, data analytics, we're getting new insights into what works. You know, Previously, we had the randomized controlled trial, which was fantastic, that generated evidence that we had information from to make decisions. And then, then we had systematic reviews and meta analyses. And in the future, we're going to have big data. We're have, we, we've got it now, and it's only going to get more and more and more insight into what are the best things to do. That's only going to be any good for us if we can understand it and relay it to people in a way that they trust, that they understand and trust and buy into and say, actually, yeah, I, I can use that. I agree with what that algorithm tells me. Yeah, I'm, I'm confident in that. I, I believe it. I'm going to act on that. And I think the interesting thing is that after centuries of delivering medical care, we still don't get that right as humans. You know, And that's why, as I said, only 50% of people take the medications that they are prescribed. There's still a problem there that, we're, that we haven't solved. Behavioral science is quite a young discipline in a lot of ways. It's emerged out of psychology, and a sort of the intersection of neuroscience and psychology and economics as well. And it's, it's sort of been bred out of those disciplines. So it's quite new still. And we're still learning a lot about how humans understand information and process it to make decisions and then take actions.
1: And you guys with the you know, you are. Were at the stage where you're going into to getting, you know, lots and lots of feedback around your, you know, your early stage product yeah. to iterate that. And, and again, you know, our, sort of, our tagline at HS is make something that patients love. And that's what it's all about is getting that feedback. So for, I, I guess, for, for, you know, maybe people listening who are um, very early in their, you know, their startup journey in the, the healthcare space uh, or indeed outside of the healthcare space, how are you guys at the moment practically going about testing that or planning to test it and how are you going to collate this, that feedback and act on it? with your, you know, your own background in behavioral science sort of playing a bit of an influence?
2: First thing that we did, very first thing that we did was we got some uh, some graphics with, you know, not powered by any particular data. We got some printed graphics. We went out to Hyde Park on a bank holiday Monday and we did what they call guerrilla testing, where we we stopped people and we got them to look at our bits of paper and said, what do you think this shows? And we did that and we got, you know, in two hours, we got 20 people, which I think was pretty good. We got 20 people to look at our designs and give us that feedback. And we said, you know, what do you think it shows? Do you understand the information in this picture? And people did, you know, within 60 seconds that he would just tell it back to us and be like, well, I think it shows, you know, X, Y, Z. Great. What do you think of it? Oh, it looks good. Okay, fine. Great. We had some people give a whole range of opinions. And actually after about 10 people, we had a pretty consistent sort of set of things that people would say, you know, that that sort of was enough to establish, okay, we've got a pattern here and what people think about this. And you encouraged us to do that, and it was great, and it worked really well. So that was really low cost, really low effort. It took us two hours, 20 people, a couple of bits of paper. That was it. We knew that we were basically doing something in a ballpark that people understood and people liked. And then from there, we just applied that same principle, that same approach at every step of the way. So the next thing that we did was we put some of those pictures together, and we put them into a scenario like, uh, should you have some antibiotics for your sore throat or not? Okay, well, the evidence shows that you probably shouldn't. But still, actually, one in five <laughs> prescriptions of antibiotics in primary care goes against the guidelines. So th- this is a problem, and it's a behavioural problem. So we're like, okay, but this is a problem that's about behaviour. So good quality information in the right format, delivered in the right way, should should solve this problem. You know, there's evidence to support that in the literature. So we got we went out and we we got these prototype like scenarios, and we compared them to existing patient information that's produced by sort of other people in the field and we and we went out and we talked through them with people and we got some clinicians and some patients together and we ran a couple of focus groups we said here just just talk through this information what do you think again paper prototypes very lightweight very easy very low cost but get 10 people in a room and they all start saying some similar things by the time you get to the 10th scenario you know, going through this again so really just applying that iterative approach to saying okay we've got some really good feedback here and, and you know and importantly listening to the things that people didn't like the first round of prototypes that we went out with people were like oh it's too much information information overload the stuff is crowded on the page and and it was all true and when we sat back and looked at it we thought yeah that's all true so then we went out again and we did it again and we we're like okay well we listened to all of that we've built on it we've changed it and again very low cost very lightweight still paper prototypes and we went back again and we said well what do you think new group of people what do you think Feedback changed completely. People are like, oh, yeah, it's, it's really good. It's broken down, very neat. Neat was the word that kept coming back, so that was good. So, you know, it's that process of do something, do it quickly, do it at low cost, do it lightweight, but just do it with not massive numbers of people. You don't need massive numbers of people at that stage. Go out, validate. If you're on the, ro- if you're on the wrong track, you know you're on the wrong track and you can go somewhere else.
3: As this kind of sort of builds on that, I think – Probably the biggest, well, not the biggest, but there's a number of potential pitfalls, but sort of one of the really big ones about big data and increasingly starting to convert individual patients into data and ones and zeros is dehumanizing the patient. You know, the sense that that kind of humans are machines. And, you know, we know that that, that is very far from the truth. So if anything, it's probably more important as we kind of take innovation in this direction in healthcare to to remember that behavioral science bit. I think that's that's super important. You know, another thing I'd say is, you know, in line with the kind of UX piece and the experience is to remember the clinicians, you know, they too are not machines. So it's not just as simple as saying, well, you know, here's the evidence and the science, here you go you know, there is very much a kind of human personal component to how clinicians communicate, the relationship they have with their patients, and whether and how they're going to adopt new innovation and new technology. And, you know, one of the kind of macro ways that we're trying to work with primary care, and it comes back to the question of, you know, as a non-healthcare person, how do you view healthcare? know you've got to work with the clinicians. I think it's really important not to come in and say, here's tech, it's going to replace the doctors or, you know we know better than you, know, you lot who are still using fax machines. It's how do we take doctors with us because they're such an important part of that journey. So I think, yeah, you know, getting that really rapid early prototyping bar from the doctors is as important as the patients, I think.
2: Absolutely agree. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that, that I would say about you know, my outlook on Basalian and what we do and what we want, we want doctors to be able to use the best statistics to treat patients.
1: We don't want them to treat patients as statistics. So I guess continuing on for that, because um, so we, I mean, we talked a little bit about the, sort of, you know, the iterative process right at the beginning of a company where you're, you know, you're, you're testing your, what is essentially your MVP and then getting from there. How, what are you guys at GPDQ doing to continue that sort of iterative process as you scale? Because certainly you know, my companies that have both been B2B and B2C facing, we still continue to do sort of, or I even as a CEO, continue to do customer calls every Friday morning to our sort of customers. And then also we did more sort of data-based uh, analytics of how the users were using the platform through things like Mixpanel through Google Analytics and iterated around that. So love to hear what you guys are doing.
3: I think the number one thing with a strategy that we have that is you know, really getting out into the ecosystem, partnering as much as we can you know, in terms of who's paying for the service and also who we can collaborate with to produce overall solutions. We need to be out there talking to people and we need to be meeting new innovators. And a big part of staying agile and fresh with what we're doing is having this early sight of what the next generation of you know, health tech startups are, are about and their perspectives and views on primary care. So interacting with you know, all of the cohorts as, as they're going to come through NHS, it, it, it keeps us on our toes. It keeps us fresh, forces us to challenge how we're approaching things. And then when we do, you know, collaborate and it makes sense to be coming up with, with joint solutions or test beds, inherently we then are kind of forced to stay agile and flexible and and fast. And I think that's I think that's really important.
1: And what do you what do you do you think are some of the sort of most exciting bits of feedback you you know you've had from your users or from or from the doctors who are part of your platform? Uh, what what's the general feedback then from them?
3: Um, well, I think you know really big part of why doctors are with us is because. They're tech savvy, they want to innovate, they want to be a part of creating a new model of primary care. And so for them, you know, it's great that the core of what we do is innovative and different. But to be able to get their hands on this early stage innovation is a really big part of why they want to come and work with with GPDQ. And from our patient perspective, one of the things I've been very conscious of is, you know, great, we have an innovative way of getting the doctor to you but if the doctor has still got you know a 1930s uh visiting bag with them you know, we can do a bit better than that and the patient experience and the innovation should you know be constant through everything that we're trying to do as your
1: partnership sort of evolves with sort of faselian um gpdq what do you, what are you guys sort of most excited about working together what are what are some of the things that you can maybe let listen, some of the listeners know about um obviously some things will probably be top secret i'm sure but um what sort of things are you looking at doing together?
3: So I think it's, you know, it's probably what, what David said. I think it's not necessarily getting too clever. It's getting after, well, what are some of the biggest problems? You know, medication adherence, but also, you know, we challenge ourselves hard, you know, especially because we're a private service on antibiotic prescription rates. So anything that we can do. That makes sure that, you know, if anything, we are absolutely leading the field on not overprescribing with antibiotics is crucially important. So I think it comes down to distilling it to to one or two specific things that we can get after. And, you know, the key to working together is is constantly to be thinking of a really broad swathe of things, but it's to get in there fast and learn fast from doing one or two things and doing them well and getting the feedback from our.
2: Yeah, I think um, a good example of, of that, just a little anecdote is, uh, I stopped by the offices and I, and I had a chat with uh, Paul's colleague, uh, Anshu, who, who is a doctor, and we were chatting about risk communication and something like that. And he said, oh, you know, I, I like to use analogies. You know, I like to say, oh, your risk of this is one in 10. That's about the same as X. he said, well, I, but I, don't, I don't have a good way of, of finding those, of, of working out what analogies to use, you know. So I was like, well, okay, well, that's, that's quite a tractable technical solution. So we, brought, we just built him a little risk generator. So you put in a risk and you say, well, this is what it is. And it generates you from a database, a little random fact that says, okay, well, that's about you know the same as X. So that was a, a really nice little example of saying, well, actually, my goal at Visalien is I want to make your doctor's lives as easy as possible. I want to solve all of these little pain points that they have around communication and where we can do something quick and easy like that. So that's just something we haven't tested it Yeah, It's still, uh, it was just a, it was a nice little example of just an exchange, a little conversation after hours in the office. And it's generated a potential nice little tool that we can add into the mix there. So those kind of low key conversations that spark an idea that generates something really just a little practical thing, little nugget that we can then potentially develop and spin out, I think it's fantastic. And where it applies to such huge global issues as is things like antibiotic resistance, antibiotic prescribing, so much the better.
1: We are certainly very excited as HS to see, you know, what you guys can, can do together and how it's going to benefit patients going forwards. Because that's obviously the most important thing around everything that we're doing. So just before we wrap up, what we sort of are going to do at the end of each of these podcasts is is let each of our guests, just give a short sort of summary, one-liner about what they do. Uh, and then also if they do have an ask for anybody, so whether that is an ask of patients who might want to get involved testing their software, if it's an ask of investors, if they're raising, it can be absolutely anything. So we'll, we'll hand over to, to David and to Paul to close out the podcast.
2: Yeah. So to sum up what Visalian does, I'd say we help every patient to understand their medical care so that they can make better informed decisions about their treatment in partnership with their their medical team. And we do that by applying behavioral science to the best data to generate meaningful information for patients. We've got one priority at the moment, and that is getting our beta build out to clinicians in a clinical context, testing it, iterating it, and building on that. So we want to run a pilot where we can do that. So the more clinicians that we can get to test that platform and get involved in a pilot, the better. So any clinicians out there who are interested in innovating their practice, delivering high quality information that patients really value, get in touch with us. We'd love to include you in a pilot. We'll need some funding to run that pilot. We're applying for lots of grants at the moment. But if any investors are interested in joining us on this journey to empower patients in healthcare,
1: we'd love to hear from you as well. You are at thesalian.com and info at Vesalian.com. Contact-wise, people can also get
2: me at thesalian.com, at any digital health companies out there, anyone that's working at, at, you know on data, on algorithms, on any of the technology that powers the, the biomedical science part of healthcare that wants to understand a bit more about the human interfaces. Again, we're very happy to work with people to understand how those deep technologies can interface with, with people in healthcare contexts. So anyone that's looking to work with us on that, be really interested to hear from you.
3: Yeah, so uh, GPDQ, we make it really easy for people to see a doctor at a time and place of their choosing. So as well as accessing us uh, directly, we work with employers and insurers where we can also cut the cost of insurance and measurably improve the health of employees, which is one of the biggest challenges uh, that those guys are facing. We're keen to hear always from patients. We'd love to get our, our service out in front of you and um, show us how we can help. Doctors, we'd love to have you with us on the journey and tell you more about uh, what it's like to come and work with us and get the chance to, to, to test at the cutting edge with, uh, with great businesses like Vesalien. And finally, uh, investment. Um, we're just going um, you know, very sort of early stage of starting our Series A. So we're always keen to hear from potential investors.